From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A scorched piece of the USS Arizona will have a home in Colorado, a vestige of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Having a piece come to Denver allows so many future generations and current generations to understand the visual representation of what America was like December 7th, 1941. We woke up, it was peacetime, but by the time most people kind of got up and around in the mid-afternoon, we were at war. Then, addiction is a family disease affecting everyone in the household. A father and son overcame it together. This journey has been, it hasn't been easy, but it's been absolutely beautiful, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. But we've earned it the hard way. We've had to go through hell and back to really get to a better place today. Who doesn't love a good buy one, get one free deal? Employer matching gift programs are kind of like that. They can turn a $100 gift into a $200 gift. Typically, a matching gift request just needs to be registered within the calendar year the donation was made. So even if you donated months ago, you could still double your gift and increase your investment in CPR. Start now at CPR.org slash gift match. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A small yet hugely important piece of history arrives in Colorado tomorrow. It is a section of steel from the battleship USS Arizona, which was sunk at Pearl Harbor almost 82 years ago, thrusting us into World War II. Nikki Stratton of Colorado Springs has a personal connection to the relic. This piece is a fragment of the battleship that my grandfather served on. It is a part of my blood is a part of my life. It's a part of my lifeline. It's a part of every aspect of my life. Stratton's granddad, Donald, lived through the attack. When he passed away in 2020, he was one of the oldest living survivors. But 41 Coloradans died that day, and 32 remain inside the Arizona. Nikki Stratton hopes this portion of steel will remind people of the sailors' sacrifices. When people see this piece, they're going to see the scorch marks. They're going to see the degradation of the steel because the Arizona burned for a number of days. And at its hottest point was the temperature of lava coming out of Kilauea, uh, the volcano in in Hawaii. Just imagine standing on 2,000 plus degrees. A team will deliver this artifact to the Colorado Freedom Memorial in Aurora on Tuesday. Rick Crandall founded the memorial, and welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thanks. So where on the ship did this piece of metal come from, and why is it important to you to have in Colorado? Well, important to me because at the Colorado Freedom Memorial, we honor all Coloradans killed in action since we became a state, over 6,300 names on the memorial. And included on those in that group of names, 32 that are still resting on the Arizona. So to have this fragment, this relic from Arizona, its whereabouts, I'll be able to tell you tomorrow because along with the relic, we'll be receiving a detailed map that's in this crate with it that shows us exactly where. You will be learning this in real time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, tomorrow. but, But we know it comes from a beam. Uh, aboard Arizona. We've been told that much. And uh, I can't tell you what this means to us. And I think a lot of people in Colorado, we 
play a lot of symbolism at the Colorado Freedom Memorial. We can't bring those remains, those bodies back home. Mm. So we look for ways we can get them closer. And this is another opportunity symbolically by having the steel here, we in some sense bring them here. Just to put a finer point on that, the, the bodies are trapped. The bodies yep. can't be removed. And that is seen as their final resting That's right. place. That's right. And so the idea of bringing the steel here is to bring a piece of Colorado's service home. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and what a remarkable piece. Do you know the size of it? Yeah. It's uh, at its length. It's it's kind of shaped like a like a ruler. It's well. It's about eighteen inches at its widest at the top, and about two feet long. And so um, it's got a narrow point. Uh, it's remarkable. I've seen a photo of it. It has you see the rivets, which really identify it with mm. Arizona. And uh, and again to have it here. And to welcome it, to greet it tomorrow in such a formal uh, setting tomorrow morning is exciting. Of course, the Arizona is underwater with a memorial built over it that mm-hmm. almost two million people visit a year. You've been there yep. as well. Yep. How is a piece of metal from the ship even available? Explain that to me. Yeah, good. That, my first question as well, right? <laughs> so wait a minute. We're cutting it apart? No. Actually, when when Arizona sank and when, when the other ships sank at Pearl on December 7th, 41, as they began to clean the harbor days and weeks later, anything that was still above the water level on those ships that had sunk was cut off below water and it was towed ashore. So pieces of Arizona, pieces of the West Virginia, pieces of Maryland, Utah, they, they all went and have been there for 80 years. Stored somewhere. Just on the shore. They're not even indoors anywhere. The, the steel has been laying there My for goodness. all that time. And uh, that's where this comes from. And the idea, I guess, is that they wanted to make this available to certain mm-hmm. groups across the country. Yeah. Because though... Uh, you know, the memorial is in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. I think, as you've hinted, it is an embodiment of service from all over the country. Absolutely. Yeah. So you you had to apply that, I guess. We did um, just over a year ago. And it actually was Nikki who first led me there. Um, Nikki has become a great friend of the Colorado Freedom Memorial and uh, and we of her. And she said, you know, you should you should send them a note. You should ask. And so uh, we did and, and were approved. And uh, that program started in 1961, I think it is, early 60s. And over the years, They've given a total of now about 150 pieces of steel relics from Arizona to groups and organizations uh, across the country with the promise of, you know, how it's going to be handled and displayed. It's been around for some time, and I'm embarrassed almost that I didn't know this was a thing. Ryan, I've been with this Colorado Freedom Memorial Project for 23 years. I didn't know, <laughs> yeah. never, right? I was in the military. I had no idea. Now, it's just closed. So the program has just closed. It'll reopen at some point. Um, but the the Navy personnel that were involved with the program have been repositioned other places around the, the Pacific Ocean. The piece of steel will arrive at Denver International Airport in the morning. Yeah. The military is well known for its rituals. What will the rituals be like? So... Yeah, and and having been in the military, my dad was in the Air Force. I, I'm a big fan of those those rituals, those those 
things that are sacred to the military. So a team of sailors from Buckley, uh, there's a Navy Reserve Center at Buckley, a team of sailors, will uh, we will go along with them out to DIA. They'll greet the plane. Uh, as the crate is offloaded from the plane, they will receive it almost as if they're receiving human remains and give it an honored transfer from the plane to a vehicle, which will be car- part of a convoy out to the Colorado Freedom Memorial. Once there, they will then take that crate and walk it up to the Colorado Freedom Memorial in front of the World War II panels where it will be opened, and then military personnel from Buckley Space Force Base, who are excited about this idea, will process by single file, uh, render a salute or honors, however, no ceremony, no speakers, no, just the quiet reflection of that steel and what it means. I think you're saying no real pomp and circumstance. You Correct. don't expect big crowds. No. But there is this kind of breathing ceremony. Yeah, which was new to me. I had not heard of this before. Yeah, it's, describe it for us. It, it's a thing, it, or it's becoming a thing, and it started as a thing for flags. And basically what it is, is once the relic arrives here and we open the crate, it gets its first air of Colorado. It breathes, it in a sense, breathes its new location. I was also told by somebody else But for the Coloradans that are aboard Arizona, this opening and this steel being near the memorial actually, in a sense, brings those Coloradans back home symbolically. Wow. You got me there, Rick. (laughs) Yeah. Do you expect there will be people there related to those Coloradans, do you think? I hope so. You know what happens... uh, generationally now we're you know we're 80 years yeah. past Arizona and families begin to forget over those years they begin to forget so I hope so we would like to meet them we would like to know who they are I do know there will be a bunch of military from Buckley we're going to do some public um, presentations of the seal beginning in November it'll give us time to build a proper display case and and to be able to show it uh, you know the way it should be shown I mean I'll be curious to what extent having the artifact here might draw people out of the woodwork Mm -hmm. you know who maybe heard a story in their family or think they have a connection and and perhaps do some deeper research yeah Mm -hmm. I look forward to that I hope I know that your hope one day is to have a visitor center yes at the Colorado Freedom Memorial in Aurora. And, and I guess the piece would be permanently housed there. It would be. It would be. We're, we're raising money now, doing our best at that. We've submitted plans to the city. Everything is, seems to be moving at a pretty good, even pace at this point. The Colorado Freedom Memorial Education and Visitor Center, that would have a 100-seat theater in it, would have a classroom in it, would have an exhibit hall where this relic from Pearl would be you know, the, one of the main attractions of the exhibits are there. We do uh, own a piece of steel from the World Trade Center um, from uh, where the first plane struck. Is that through a similar program um, where they were distributed? It's through an organization bas- back east called the Freedom Flag Foundation. They they actually are an organization trying to create a national flag of remembrance for the attacks at the World Trade Center on 9-11. Um, you mentioned earlier that you have about 6,300 names of yeah. Coloradans is it who, who died in service. So the criteria for uh, recognition on the memorial uh, died 
uh, from on the battlefield, right, died on the battlefield or from wounds suffered directly on the battlefield uh-huh. since we became a state. So it's the Spanish-American War through today. Do you still add names then? Do you find stories? Sadly, record keeping in the military in the early days wasn't the best. So we still find names from World War One, from World War Two. Families often will notify us. You know, my I think my grandfather should be on the memorial and isn't. So we'll start doing research and and confirm that. And then, yeah, we uh, we have names that uh, I, I I'd say every month we at least one and and likely more. Wow. Yeah. In that way, though it honors the dead, it's a very living memorial. Very. Yeah. I tell people those words exactly all the time. This is a living monument. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, I enjoyed every minute. Rick Crandall is founder and executive director of the Colorado Freedom Memorial. A section of the USS Arizona is expected to arrive in Aurora early Tuesday. And we'll be right back with a story of addiction and recovery that affects an entire family. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Matthew Fisher always felt like an outsider. He struggled to make friends and was overcome by mood swings. By age 13, he turned to drugs and alcohol to cope. His father, Stephen, was desperate to help. Let's join Back From Broken, CPR's podcast about recovery, with host Vic Vela. When I was a kid, I was a lot for my parents to handle. I mean, all kids have their moments, right? But when you add drugs and alcohol, I would always make things interesting, that's for sure. Like this one time, I was about 16 and I'd been out partying all night. I passed out near a river, and when I woke up the next morning, I was sore and bloodied and realized I had gotten into a fight. I don't remember any of it, and I was still drunk when I awoke. And who was left to deal with me? My mom and dad. I know that my drug addiction was really hard on them. And you know, there's lots of other parents out there who can relate to seeing their kids suffer. Stephen Fisher is one of them. As parents, we all have those moments where we wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat, thinking of how we screwed up our kids. I think, I don't know if any parent I've ever talked to who has not had some of those moments. And they get all of our dysfunction, but they get our good parts too. And I have to say, this journey has been, it hasn't been easy, but it's been absolutely beautiful. And I wouldn't trade it for the world, but we've earned it the hard way. We've had to go through hell and back to really get to a better place today. Stephen and his wife are therapists. And while they often would help other families work through their issues, Their own son, Matt, was struggling with drugs and alcohol as a teenager. Matt felt that getting drunk and high helped him control his mood swings. I think it was like trying to self-soothe and I was like, you know, I don't don't want to be like so angry anymore and I don't want to feel so out of control. Addiction really is a family disease. It affects everyone in the household. 
And if you're a parent or a child struggling with addiction and destructive behavior, maybe you'll hear your own family story in the Fishers. Today, we're going to hear from Stephen and Matt Fisher about the ways Matt's struggles really impacted their family, how Matt found help, and the ways they're now working to help other families who struggle. Stephen and his wife Liz welcomed their first son Matthew into the world in the early 90s. When he came out as a baby, his energy was so bright and so intense, always asking questions, always wanting to know the truth, never settling for less. And then when he was about two years old, his brothers, his twin brothers were born, and he got knocked off the throne really hard, and he was really pissed off about that. And then we had all the sibling rivalry, and this just kind of morphed into more and more anger and hurt and feeling left out over the years. And then that intensity kind of took a darker turn, and then we had to sort through all that kind of stuff. Matt, thinking back, you know, your, your dad said you were a smart kid, lots of questions. When you think back on being a little kid, is there a particular memory that stands out around that period? We moved from Mississippi to Colorado when I was five. So I think, like, growing up in Mississippi, you know, it's like we had our family around us. We realized that our grandparents and just a lot of support. And I think moving out here, you know, I kind of, like, lost my best friend. And then my, you know, I, I always kind of struggled to meet new people. My brothers were very social. Yeah, moving out here was just very dysregulating. And, um, you know, I, I made, you know, some good friends out here as, you know, in, like, kindergarten, first grade. But... Yeah, it was always just kind of like this, oh, like, you know, I I don't really belong here. And, um, you know, kind of contrasting that with my very social brothers. So I just felt like kind of an outcast. That's tough for a kid. Yeah. Yeah. That isolation weighed heavily on Matt. And as he got older, it was hard for him to understand why he couldn't fit in. He liked the same things other kids did, like fire trucks and Hot Wheels. But he had a lot of mood swings and anger especially when puberty hit. There was one day when his temper really boiled over. So Matthew was about 12 or 13, and this is when he really started to feel the pinch of that teenage years and that emotion, that anger, and that hurt of feeling left out with his brothers kind of got worse. And so I was doing a grand opening of my counseling office, and Matthew and his brothers were playing the parking lot with, with another friend. You know, it was like one of my one of my best friends would like always uh, come over for school, and I was um, at this point in my life, I was kind of like slowly losing everyone around me, and kind of the point where like you know that frankly, you know, they didn't want to hang out with me. I think that was looking back, irreasonable for the way I was acting. Mm-hmm. But I, I think in the moment, I was just like seeing them as like kind of stealing my best friend, and um, like feeling really lonely, and and um, yeah, there's this whole thing of like, oh, they're getting all the attention, and I'm like kind of left on my own. So it just kind of built up. Yeah, I just kind of had this moment where I threw my brother off the bike and um, just kind of this, it just felt really uncontrollable and impulsive. And I, you know, I definitely had a lot of mood mood issues going on and um, just would kind of have to go into these like really, really uncontrollable rages. And this is, again, during the grand opening of my counseling thing. So I'm sure everybody's looking at the counselor like, what's your kid doing beating up your other kid? And right across the parking lot, my wife's boss was walking across the parking lot to our grand opening and saw it all happen and broke it up. I think like after it happened, then I ran home and I just started crying. And it was like, I didn't, I felt really bad about it. And I was Mm -hmm. like, you know, I didn't want to hurt my brother. And it was just like feeling out of control. And um, yeah, I remember like kind of my parents coming home and like about to yell at me. And then I just started crying and uh yeah, so I think the biggest thing was, like, just feeling angry and out of control and, like, kind of scared of what I, like, 
not being able to control my actions. Oh, gosh. And as parents, it was hard for us because math, one of Matthew's core wounds or core emotional issues was feeling abandoned, feeling alone, feeling left out. And we, Liz and I just knew, we just knew that that was pounded his core issues really hard and how much he was hurting that caused him to act out like that. And so we were feeling for him, even though we were also feeling for our other son who had just gotten beat up and was really traumatized as well. And so we were trying to be there for both of them. That was a hard moment. And, and Matt, I got to say, like, I, I had a lot of behavioral problems when I was young, too. Like going back to kindergarten, mouthing off to the teacher and getting kicked out of the class. Like the principal's office had like a wing dedicated to me. Like it was just like I was bad. <laughs> and I can relate right. to that rage, that yeah. rage where you were just like the Incredible Hulk. But then that, um, that the worst feeling in the world is that remorse when it settles in because you knew, gosh, if I could just go back and, and do it over again, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think about that a lot. Well, I, and Stephen, you are still a human being. You're still mm-hmm. human. Yep. And humans still react in ways. And, and, and so I got, I got to ask, like, this was a big day for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had to have been pissed off. Well, therapists are people too. And I think more than pissed off, I was probably feeling shame that all of my family dysfunction was exposed to the public, but also just the fact that feeling like as a dad, what could I have done differently so we didn't get to that position in the first place? Stephen Fisher and his son, Mass, whose downward spiral would only get worse. When we come back, Matt's introduced to marijuana and the so-called cool crowd, but at what cost? You're hearing this journey back from broken, thanks to CPR's Vic Vela. On CPR News and KRCC, I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters. So you'd like to know more about classical music? One way is to look at music through a theme, like animals in classical music. That's a lumbering elephant. Or maybe the theme is music used in Saturday morning cartoons. That's from the cartoon, The Wabbit of Seville. I'm Carla Walker. Join me for a new way to look and listen to classical music every weekday at 1030 in the Music Room. We are sharing the experience of Matthew Fisher, who struggled with anger as a young boy. That only intensified in his teenage years. His father, Stephen, felt helpless. Let's rejoin the host of Back From Broken, Vic Vela, with this Colorado story. Matt knew he was way out of control that day, and he was tired of feeling so angry all the time. So when his neighbor introduced him to marijuana when he was in middle school, Matt loved the way it made him feel. It did give me a feeling of like being more in control. Mm. And then one kid was selling like Oxycontin on the school bus in seventh grade, and so we, you know, I kind of, like, I think, I think just as I as I started like you know developing this reputation and a lot of my friends parents were telling me like oh like you know you can't hang out with this kid i started hanging out with uh you know just like a rougher crowd and you know i remember summer into eighth grade i was just like hanging out with this you know these two girls and that my my friend's older brother that were just using a lot and you know it was like you know a lot of painkillers and drinking a lot and smoking a lot You know, my, my dad actually found me drunk, like, passed out on this trail by our house. Walk me through that. 
the, that day where your dad found you. Yeah, I, I was. I got really drunk. Like we kind of were were pre drinking at a friend's house, and then there was like this spot in the woods, called the couch. Like all the cool kids were hanging out there, and there were some older, older, like kind of more like twenty somethings. I thought were really cool, but they were kind of like these burnouts that worked. That you know, like we're just kind of selling drugs and cigarettes to kids and high schoolers. Um, so that was kind of like a big deal for me of like getting invited to this like party in the woods. But yeah, I like had too much to drink and, um, just kind of passed out. And like, I remember like one kid put a cigarette on me and they're just kind of laughing that I was like, they just kind of left me there. You know, here I am like having a good time with all these people and feeling kind of like accepted. I'm in the, I'm cool. And then everyone just uh, kind of left, you know, and I'm just like, I can't even like get up, but I'm like throwing up on the ground. And I was, it was like, where'd everyone go? And, um, yeah, yeah, just feeling really, really like abandoned and like kind of all these, these new friends that I thought I'd made. I was, I was just like, oh, like I guess they didn't really care about me. That's hard, Stephen. That's got to be. I mean, you, you, your son is passed out in the woods. Like, what do you remember about that? Well, we knew there was something going on that day, and I was looking for him. I was looking all over town, and I'd heard about this spot in the woods, and I went back there before, and. And so I, I decided to go back there again because I figured they're probably back there. And I was going back there for the second or third time this time. And sure enough, there he was, just passed out. It was a Saturday morning right on the trail beside the woods, about, you know, 100 yards off the, off the field. And um, I was just feeling really heartbroken. Mm. I was feeling so heartbroken that it had come to this. And I remember Matthew's packed, passed out and I just um, picked him up and I carried him home. I put him in his bed and just let him sleep it off. And I was just feeling so broken. And I was feeling like, what? How have I contributed to getting here? What is what is my responsibility for contributing to this? And how has we have a family gotten here? And I just felt heartbroken for my son because in my eyes, Matthew's not this angry, aggressive stoner that's scaring other kids. He's this little two-year-old boy with so much joy in him. That's the Matthew I've always known. And in those moments, all I saw was this two-year-old kid with such joy. And I'm just, I was just thinking, where did that go? Yeah. And then we got through that moment and we went on, but it was, um, yeah, that was a hard day. That was a hard day. Yeah, I'm sorry, Stephen. I mean, you're the dad. This is your boy, you know? Yeah. And I'm also feeling like I've I've really screwed him up. Why would you feel that? Because, I mean, we did with... And we're honestly... Liz and I were good parents. We were great parents, but we weren't perfect. There are no perfect parents. We have our share of character defects and our mistakes, and we're working on it. But really looking at my own character defects and my own issues that have contributed to the problem. And that's what I want to say to all families and parents out there is instead of playing the blame game, we all want to look at our own part, not to blame ourselves or criticize ourselves, but to own accountability and to learn how to forgive ourselves and forgive our kids. Because our character defects don't ultimately define us. They're they're patterns that we're stuck in, but if we want to do our own inner work, we can break free of those patterns. And this whole process between Matthew and I, Matthew's struggles was a wake-up call for us to have as a family to really look at our own issues and to really heal and get better as a family. So our healing process wasn't just Matthew, it was all of us. It was me and Liz and our other sons 
growing and getting better and releasing our own shame and our own hurt. And that's ultimately what it's come down to over the years. And those moments don't ultimately define us. I think that was the lesson for me. Stephen and his wife Liz couldn't figure out how to help Matt. He was still using drugs a lot, and when he was in eighth grade, he even got arrested at school for beating up another kid. When they were at one of Matt's probation hearings, Stephen decided it was time to lay down the law. We were sitting about to go into court one day, and one of his conditions of probation was uh, he couldn't smoke any pot. And I know he had, but he got, he'd passed the UA, so I know he'd gotten away with it. And so we're sitting in that little room before we go into court, and our lawyer's sitting there, and I said, Matthew, you need to tell the judge the truth. You need to be honest with her. And my lawyer said, Steve, don't do it. <laughs> I, said, I said, no, I got to. I'm sorry. I, I got to. I said, Matthew, you can tell the judge or I'm going to. And he did, but he said he didn't trust me after that. He didn't trust me for a couple of years after that. So you told the judge that he had hot? Well, I said either he has to, yeah, that he smoked pot while he was on probation, breaking the conditions of his court probation. And and so I said, either you tell her or I'm going to. And so he did tell her. I wanted it to come from him. And uh, and he got some consequences out of it, but it wasn't the end of the world. Mm-hmm. But that kind of stubbornness that sometimes maybe I come on a little too strong. Maybe I'm not strong enough. It's just a... It's a hard line to walk. I'm doing the best I can. Yeah, finding that balance as a dad, yeah. you know? Yeah. Gosh. Matt, how did you feel? Did, did you understand why your dad did this? I, yeah, no, I, I do. <laughs> I do now. I mean, I, and I think, you know, in the back of my mind, I, I got it. But I was just so pissed off and, like, scared and, like, you know, made me want to, like, hide stuff more. Yeah. Matthew and Stephen Fisher sharing their journey back from Broken with CPR's Vic Vela. After a break, Matt continued to drink and use drugs for years after that, until one night brought a wake-up call. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Between Copper Mountain and Leadville, more than 11,300 feet above sea level, the town of Climax once stood. It was home to the most financially successful business during the Great Depression. It helped the Allies win World War II, and ultimately, it just disappeared. The reason? Molybdenum. When prospectors discovered the metallic element near the top of Fremont Pass, there wasn't much use for it. But demand increased during World War I, since molybdenum makes some of the strongest alloyed steel. A town sprouted up around the mine, which by World War II became the source for all the molybdenum the Allies needed for things like armor plating. Operations grew, until it became the largest underground mine in the world, and the town above it became uninhabitable. Today, the town is gone, but the mine remains, and roughly 500 million pounds of molybdenum. A Colorado postcard from CPR. Addiction is really a family disease. It affects everyone in a household. For Matt Fisher and his father, Stephen, family was also key to coming back from broken. Here again is CPR's Vic Vela. One night when he was 18, Matt took LSD with some friends, but he was having a really bad trip. His friends took his keys and Matt left without a coat or shoes in the middle of winter. He ended up sitting inside his freezing car all alone. He was trying to figure out who to call for help. Yeah, I remember like going through my phone, just like tripping and uh, she's like, I don't have anybody, 
you know, like I don't, I can't really count on any of these people. I don't, you know, I don't trust any of these people. And, uh, yeah, just, just feeling like I, I had been given this amazing gift of, of life and of just family and, and love. And then I'd really squandered it. Yeah. It was just the sense that I, I just kind of ruined that. And I, I had mm. pushed everyone away and I didn't have anyone and I have nothing. Finally, Matt decided to call his parents. And so me and my wife, Liz, are driving across town. Liz is on the phone with him, and he's trying, in his state of mind, he's trying to give us directions to where he is. And we're, by some lucky chance, I was driving. She, Liz is telling me which direction to go. And about 30 minutes later, we pulled in the parking lot of some apartment complex in Aurora. And we, and we pulled up, and there was his car. And he was sitting in it. And it was so pitiful because he had a light T-shirt on, no shoes, sitting in the driver's seat of his car, just shivering, just absolutely shivering in the snow out there. And I remember we pulled up beside him, he looked over at us. The look of relief on his face was like, oh my God, thank God you're here. (laughs) And we got him in the car and we gave him a big hug and Liz drove his car home and I was driving him home. And on the way home, he kept on saying to me, he said, Dad, the love is all gone. Where did it go? Where did it go? And of course, he's tripping hard. He is tripping hard. And, and it's not a good experience. And, and I said, Matthew, the love is right here. It never left. Wow. That's the space that Liz and I always held for Matthew is that the love is always here. It never left. Even if you don't see it in the current moment, it's still here. We are still here. We love you. You're a beautiful, beautiful person, even if you don't see that right now. And that's the space we're always holding for him, even when he couldn't hold that for himself. I mean, how powerful. Matt, what what did you mean when you said, I lost the love? I feel like as a, as a kid, I just, I had this really profound sense of like love and connection and like, just, yeah, just feeling like I had this, all these supportive people around me. And I, I think I always was very empathetic and I always really cared about other people. Like my dad likes to tell the story of like when I, uh, when I, you know, they're reading like a Christmas Carol when I'm like five or six and it gets to the part about Tiny Tim and he can't go to the doctor. I'm like, well, why can't he go to the doctor for free? Oh, you know, and I, I think I, I, and I really love my brothers too, kind of, even though I was angry at them and, and all, you know, all these people and, uh, kind of like the, not terribly religious, but the prodigal son kind of story. That's what, that's kind of what I felt, you know, seeing my dad. And so we, we got him home and it's about three o'clock in the morning by this point. And we made this pallet with blankets on the floor by our bed because we just didn't want him to go anywhere because we he was still tripping hard and we were just scared for him. Sure. And he was really in a really dark place. And I woke up a couple hours later. It's probably about 3, 30, 4 o'clock. I woke up and he's gone. And I just freaked out. I said, Liz, where do you? I, mean, I was freaking out. And so we looked frantically for him everywhere. And we found him across the street in a park. He was meditating under a tree. And so he's in a better place by this point. And he has a little bit better experience. So I was like, okay, this is better. And, uh, but we still brought him home. And uh, and we took care of him. And for the next month, he was in such a dark, dark, dark place. Me and Liz were both really scared for him. And we just kind of nurtured him back to health. He couldn't go to school. He couldn't work. He couldn't do anything for the next month. We just kind of nurtured him back to health. And then he finally got on his way. But I think, Matthew, I think that was rock bottom for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was a really big turning point. 
I was experiencing like psychosis. So I, like I remember I had work the next day. I was working at this coffee shop and everything was too loud. And I, I was like done with the acid at this point and uh you know everything it, it wasn't done with you yeah yeah, yeah. Well, i went up to my boss i was like i can't i can't work today <laughs> and i think i actually told her that i i had had a bad i, I was like yeah i just did some acid like i just was not <laughs> coherent she was really sweet about it she was like i didn't get fired i think she just told me to go home I, i'm sure she appreciated the the honesty <laughs> yeah so i um it was about two, a month and a half or two months, but I, I, I couldn't work yeah. at my parents' house. You know, it was, I remember even like the first week or two, like I was hard to walk my dog around the, the block. I had heard about, you know, LSD induced schizophrenia or psychosis. And uh, we'd, we'd had some, you know, I've definitely had some family history of schizophrenia. So I was just like, I have schizophrenia now. Okay. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. It was just really scary just having all these thoughts of like, oh, like I'm just like, I'm never going to be able to to go to college or like fall in love. Really just feeling like I've messed up my life. It took Matt about a month to come out of the psychosis he was experiencing. He spent most days laying on his parents' couch because that was really all he could do. Slowly but surely, though, he started to feel like himself again. He was keeping a journal and eating better. And he turned to something that's becoming more and more popular for folks in recovery that some studies say can make a big difference for people trying to kick a drug habit. I think I started watching uh, yoga on TV. (laughs) They had like a a, a subscription to Gaiam. It was like they do a lot of yoga and meditation. So I started watching this guy named Rodney Yee doing yoga. And I just started meditating and doing yoga. And I was kind of, it just was like, oh, like I I feel pretty good doing this. And, uh, you know, it was like a really... This guy had like a great relaxing voice and kind of this whole guided experience. And I was just like kind of the first time in a long time just doing something that just for the sake of doing it and like feeling good about it. I'd always been really interested in neuroscience and and, uh, psychology. So I started getting books on like neuroscience and addiction and depression and like um, just really trying to understand like why am I feeling like this? Like why am I feeling the need to use like... And how do I just start to feel better about myself, like sober? Mm-hmm. So now, now you're in it. You're yeah. you're digging this stuff. Yeah. After everything, kind of the torture that you put yourself through, right? You know, in your own life, and now you have something that's really helpful and soothing, and and I guess calming, right? Yeah, absolutely. Did yoga help with the mood swings? Yeah, it did. I th- I was like, at this point, I, I I think I still had some mood swings and mania, but I was just more like numb. And I think I think a lot of me like had really tamped down a lot of that anger and just kind of got in the state of like, I'm just dissociated and like kind of numb. Um, so it more felt like it was bringing me like out of that. Like, okay, like I can start to feel again. And I um Dad, I don't know if you noticed me like having like mood swings. I think there were some times where I'd go off and you were mom or stuff. But I think after that, I didn't have like as much. 
No, that started to go away at that point. Yeah. I mean, so when, when Matthew was 12, he was diagnosed with a mood disorder. And the mood swings are always there. But at that point in time, that's when it really started to go down. You really started to level out. But you had to work at it. You had to get your sleep. You took your exercise seriously. You took your self-care seriously. We saw you reading all these books. I'd see all these book titles of healing depression and all, you know, and mood disorder and how to, you know, win friends and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's all these books you're reading all the time. That was a real turning point for you. Stephen, let me ask you, since you're the expert really on this, a mood disorder, I know that's, that's, we hear that, you know, but I guess explain to other parents out there what that looks like uh, sure. when you have a child with, with a mood disorder. So mood disorder is high impulsivity and low frustration tolerance, where you're more impulsive and you have a lower tolerance for any difficult situations, much easier to pop off, lose your cool, and more so than most people. Um, so that's High impulsivity, low frustration tolerance is basically all about what a mood disorder is. And Matthew had all those hallmarks. Yeah. And so we had that diagnosis and we tried different medications, but none of that really was made a big difference. It really wasn't the solution. We really had to go through our own process. Well, and I got to tell you, you described me perfectly. And it's one of the reasons why I do this yeah. show. And let me explain, because I, I you know... Boy, we've we, there's so many hurdles in terms of access to mental health to begin with. Okay, right. much less twenty plus thirty years ago, right, right in small right. town Colorado. Much less growing up in a Mexican American family where culturally, right, mental health is going to see a a, a counselor is not something that's in part of the culture. Like that's something right. wasps do, right? Right. Right. And uh, so. I more than likely had an undiagnosed mood disorder because I had the exact same things that Matt went through, you know, the blow ups, feeling persecuted by authority and kind of like telling them to F off. But then I also am totally honest. I never tell a lie because I'm just brutally honest. So many of us have these issues and we, you know, and it's, it's so hard for kids and for, for, for parents to have to deal with that. Right. 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 But there's such a gift, too. And if you can work on the downside of it, the upside of that gift is amazing. I mean, Matthew is an amazing human being who's who's really coming into his power and just living his truth. And he's not afraid to be himself authentically, but he's now he's kind about it. And now he's considerate of other's feelings, whereas before that was the part he was missing. But he's still kept that authenticity, which I just admire so much about him. So the good can exist without the bad. Absolutely. It's almost like all those experiences just kind of burned away some of the character defects so he could just, the purity of who he's always been and who I remember him as as a two-year-old and that joy that he has, he still has it. He didn't lose it. Yeah. And Matthew started really coming around. He, he started, he was really apologizing to his brothers for how horrible a bit of an older brother he'd been. And at this point, his younger brothers, my twins, were two years younger than them. They said, screw you, dude. You've been horrible to us all these years, and now you're getting healthy on me? Well, screw you. And it took them like a couple years to finally forgive him. But but Matthew was very patient. He took accountability over and over and over again. One of my twins was talking about Stockholm Syndrome for a while because he was just so scared of his older brother. You know, he just had to kind of kiss up to him so he wouldn't get, get hurt. Oh, no, gosh. And one time, I remember hearing one of my twins, Craig, say, Matthew, I know that you're better. And I know that you've come a long way, but when you try to come hug me, I still flinch because I don't know what's coming. 
And there was a couple of years where that whole period of transition, but Matthew was just a rock star. He was really accountable. He was really kind. He was consistently gentle and apologetic. And that brought him around. It took him a couple of years, but that brought him around. And then this is a few years ago. One of my other sons is now working at a rehab center too. And he said, out of all the people, he's seen a lot of people in rehab. He says he's never seen anybody turn it around so dramatically in such a short period of time as Matthew did. Because Matthew really did his own work to turn this around because he really wanted to change. He was at the point where he wanted it. He said, this is enough. I got to do something. You got to be willing. Yeah. Yeah. The willingness has got to be there. I think that's a really good example of how the healing and recovery is not limited to the person with the problem. The whole family is impacted and they have to heal altogether. We have our own issues and we had our own you know, family lineage and we have our own stuff and we had to work on our own stuff. So yes, it is a family issue and we've all had to work on our communication and our own emotions and our own, how do we, how do we have conflict resolution in a healthy way and how do we have healthy boundaries, but how do we, all that stuff that you have to learn, but do it without, have healthy boundaries without being a jerk about it. And all that's, we've all, we've all had to work on that together. It wasn't easy, but Matt and his family put in a lot of work together to overcome the issues they had faced in the past. While he was mending relationships and really starting to take care of himself, Matt was also thinking about what he was going to do next. After getting a college degree in outdoor education, he started working in rehab settings as a wilderness therapist and in more traditional centers. Matt started writing blog posts about his experiences, and in reading some of them, Stephen asked his son if he wanted to write a book together. And I talked to him. He's like, yeah, let's do it. And it's been a huge part of our own healing journey to be able to talk about it and to process it. And I think that our story has a lot to offer other families because so many families, we all have these stories, but we're also embarrassed and ashamed to tell the stories because they're embarrassing. Yeah. And just being able to tell these stories and know that these this character defects and this dysfunction does not define us. What it is to be human is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And working through these character defects, you just get the gold that's underneath. So we can talk about the stories and realize that the stories don't ultimately define us. And that's been a real big part of our healing process. Matt, what have you learned about your relationship with your father throughout this process? I, I think just how reliable my dad is. He's very stubborn, and we, we butted heads a lot. But I, I I really appreciate just how, like, genuine and honest he is. And, and it's always been like we've been able to, to talk about and work through things. And um, I really can't imagine what it was like kind of, like, raising, you know, a kid like like me. And, um, sure, you know, I, I think that, that I'm definitely able to be where I'm at today because of him and, and my mom, you know. And um, you know, I work with a lot of people without that kind of support. And I kind of know where all these things can spiral down to. And I'm just I'm really grateful to have had that safety net. Stephen, what advice do you have for families, dads, moms, who have their sons or daughters are struggling with mental health issues, uh, substance abuse issues, because that father-son relationship is so complicated. Right. You know, it's obviously, it could be very strong. It could be very emotional, even in the perfect situation. Right. And then you add these other things that you dealt with with, with Matt. What kinds of uh, advice do you have there? Right. 
So there's no one size fits all. You have to look at your own situation and do what you feel is right. And there's no right or wrong answer a lot of times. You just do the best you can. But through it all, the main thing is to remember your love for your kid. And are you coming from your own issues or your own defensiveness or your own emotional triggers? Or are you sorting through that and trying to keep the love for your kid in sight? And are you doing whatever you do, whether it's boundaries or you're, you're trying to nurture them or let them, let them off the hook or you're, whatever you're doing, are you doing it because of your love for your kid or are you doing it because you're emotionally triggered and you're, and you're defensive and you're upset? Always try to look at your own motivations and come from that place. Mm. Yeah, I, I talk with a fair amount of parents and do some volunteer work with teens in recovery. Um, and that's, that's a hard line of like, you know, where, when do I bring down the hammer on the kid and when... When do I really try to um, to maintain that open communication, and honesty, and uh, it it can be hard because you know you can either be too permissive and let these behaviors continue, or you can alienate your kid. Um, so that's I don't think there's any easy answers, and you know I think looking back, I, you know I think I think my parents, um, you know, just were trying to make the best decisions they could, you know, in some really tough circumstances. Well, thank you for that, and Matt, I'll, I'll give you the last word. What advice? do you have for people, especially young people, right? Especially kids, teens, young adults who are struggling with some of the things that you struggle with? Yeah, don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really easy when you're wrapped up in being a teenager and, and uh, friends. And it, it just seems like the whole world, like this is the world and you know nothing's ever going to be different. I know it sounds cheesy, but like, and that is just such a small part of your life. Yeah, and you're going to meet other people. And, and I tell a lot of folks in treatment and recovery is like, it's okay to be by yourself. It's okay to disappoint people. And, and I think a lot of like my decisions came from like being afraid of being alone or not being okay with myself. And I think really, you know, if you want to have healthy relationships, if you want to make good decisions, like having a sense of self, a strong sense of self and, 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 self-respect and self-love and like yeah just being okay to to be the odd man out and I always felt like kind of awkward you know as college too of just being like hey like I don't want to smoke and it was like hard to say no I was like I want to belong I want to be cool and it was like just this moment but yeah I think in recovery like you're gonna have so many of those moments and you just have to be like I I need to put myself first yeah I need to know that I, I will get through this and there is a light at the end of the tunnel Back from Broken, created and hosted by Vic Vela. The podcast is available everywhere, including CPR.org. Finally today, we are reading the latest book for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Go as a River is a novel set in Iola, Colorado, a real-life town that was flooded to make way for a reservoir. The author is Shelley Reed of Gunnison. Well, I think it's a little piece of Colorado history that a lot of Coloradoans aren't even aware of. Blue Mesa Reservoir, as the largest reservoir in Colorado to so many people, is just this absolutely beautiful lake. But knowing the history and knowing there are actually three towns at the bottom of that beautiful lake really give it, uh, to me at least, so much more interest and historical depth than most people are aware of. So I wanted to tell that story. Her displaced characters are peach farmers wondering what their future will hold. Go as a River is also about the displacement of indigenous people. So pick up a copy and then read with us 
And join me September 13th in Grand Junction. We'll record an interview on stage with author Shelley Reed. All the details and free tickets at cpr.org slash turn the page. Once again, the book is Go as a River by Shelley Reed. And all the information you need is at cpr.org slash turn the page. That's Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to Michelle P. Fulcher. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.